Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, Six-Armed Sorceress Spiral has many fingers and many pies in Excalibur number 109, Dragon Moon Rising, co-starring the Dragons of the Crimson Dawn, who we might continue to not talk about. We'll see. Excalibur <laughs> number 109 was originally published in May 1997, and the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Salvador LaRocque on pencils, Scott Koblish on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters, and Matt Ideal and Paul Tatron on editing. And that's what she is, the queen of refuse. So bow down to her if you want, bow to her, bow to the queen of slime, the queen of filth, the queen of putrescence. Boo! Boo! Rubbish, filth, slime, muck! Boo! Boo! Welcome back to the podcast that has never not been about comics where Excalibur fight the Crimson Dawn, or maybe it just feels that way sometimes. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm especially fond of talking about sexy, gendery stuff in comics and pop culture at places like Sequential Scholars, where I think we're currently talking about Mariko and Jillian Tamaki's skim at the time of this episode dropping. I'm even more fond of talking about Nightcrawler in my very unpaid role as his unofficial PR manager. And in that capacity, I'm campaigning to get him some better friends this week, ones that bother to tell him that his girlfriend broke up with him and left his superhero team uh anyway moving on i am joined as always by mav what are you mooning over this week hi my name is christopher maverick but you can call me mav i am a teaching assistant professor of digital narrative and interactive design at university of pittsburgh we were talking offline about like how titles work and everything and how mine makes me sound way more impressive than i actually am like i just i just like was really incredibly like how many syllables there are like in the byline under my name on my on my email sig it's a lot um <laughs> i also am the host of another podcast called vox popcast where we talk about pop culture issues and cultural studies and um and can i, can I say my, my new thing because i have yet another yes. title because yes yeah um as of, i can now officially say i am also the editor of a uh, essay collection called batman also starring which are um, cultural studies essays on people in batman comics who are not batman um <laughs> <laughs> like that, that is the premise of the book that i pitched like you know how you you read a book about batman and you have like a whole bunch of books essays about batman or maybe you have essays about you know important cool people like uh robin or nightwing or batgirl or harley quinn well i thought hey wouldn't it be cool if there were a book of essays about non-cool people like there aren't enough essays about alfred 
Alfred is the most famous person that I want in this book. So like Aunt Harriet, when anybody want to write a, write an essay about a scholarly <laughs> work about Aunt Harriet from the Batman uh, 66 television, uh, television show, because I would love to have you in my essay collection. If you do, or, you know, I would do- write that if I had the time, Mav. I think that's a super cool idea. Yeah. And so, like, you know, the use of Socratic irony with Aunt Harriet yep. is worth yep. a piece. Yeah. Yep. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I signed, I signed my book contract yesterday. So that, 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 that's like my new, it's something I've been working on for, I mean, you guys have known about it. I've been working on it for the last few months now. So that's, that's what I am. It's yet another title, um, (laughs) you know, with like my literal 40 that I have. Um, yeah. All deserved, all completely deserved. No, I won't tolerate really, the they're not. Syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> my goodness. Nope, deserved. I won't hear a second word about it. Andrew, how are your celestial spirits this week? They have diabetes, but they're coping. Uh, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Demand, <laughs> sequential scholars in St. John's University. And when I started as a young, intrepid comic scholar, it was our guest mm. book that really opened my eyes to comic scholarship, and in particular, comic scholarship about Chris Claremont's X Men, which I wrote yep. a book about. So this is a delight for me today. One of the first times I was in your office, Andrew, I noted uh, his book on your shelf. And I was like, oh, man. And we talked about it. I remember. Um, Well, let's introduce our our esteemed guest and get into it. No, now has total imposter syndrome. (laughs) I know. know. (laughs) No imposter syndrome this week. I'm not tolerating it. I already said. So our crew is joined this week by such an exciting first-time guest um, whose pioneering superhero scholarship, as we just talked about, helped inspire us all. The pod couldn't be happier to welcome the one and only Richard Reynolds. Greetings, Richard. Hello, Anna. It's lovely to meet all of you, to see you again, although only online. So, yeah, and thank you very much for having me. (laughs) We're so thrilled to have you. I'll I'll give you a little introduction for our listeners, and then I'm going to come right back to you to talk about your love of comics and some of your research. Richard Reynolds is a senior lecturer and course leader of the Master of Arts in Applied Imagination at Central St. Martin's University of the Arts London. He has been lecturing and writing about comics, superheroes, and other facets of popular culture since 1991. His best-known work is probably Superheroes Among Modern Mythology, originally published in 1994, but he also received an honorable mention for Best Edited Book from the Comics Study Society in 2022 for the book Superheroes in Excess, a Philosophical Adventure, co-edited with Jamie Brassett and has been publishing lots of other exciting stuff in recent years. So Richard, I want to hear about your research a little bit more. We're going to come back to it throughout the pod, but we like to get to know our guests a little better by talking about comics origin stories. And mm-hmm. I know you're going to have an interesting one. We already talked about your book book being one of the first sort of serious academic studies of superhero comics so we're definitely going to get to that but let's start just with your like love affair with comics were you a comics reader throughout your life how long do you want me to talk about this for because well um, take your time you're our uh, guest well i was was, we don't have to talk about crimson dawn yeah (laughs) um I was discouraged. I, I came from a very um, academic family. My father was a well-known industrial scientist. My mother was an English literature graduate and former teacher. And um, comics were pretty frowned on. Uh, but I became very interested. When I was studying English literature at university, and even before I went to university, I was very interested in superhero comics when I picked them up. There was a kind of fascination, and I kind of circled round them for a number of years. You remember those Stan Lee origin of Marvel comics and Bring on the Bad Guys? Oh, yeah. Before everyone's time, Absolutely. I used to thumb through those in the shops and almost bought those. And then eventually, if you know, it's funny, but you think about doing something and you're on the edge of doing something for a long time, 
and you don't do it, and then you just do it. One day, I was the summer, uh, early summer of my second year as an undergraduate at University of Oxford. I just went into the covered market and bought two Marvel comics, an Iron Man comic and Daredevil, and took them back to my room, and I read them, and I was hooked. That was the beginning. They were everything I expected, but so much better, and just grew from there, really. That was 1978, May 1978. Is that enough? Did you... I could tell you more. No, I, I, I am <laughs> going to ask you more about it. I mean, yeah. uh, how did sort of that love affair progress? Like, did you start at buying comics more regularly over the, over oh, the subsequent yes, decades? Oh, yes, straight away, yes. Yeah, and there was so much. It was a very good time. I think the 1970s is a very interesting decade in comics, and it was a very interesting time to be starting to collect. I mean, the Chris Claremont was writing the X-Men. You know, uh, there was interesting things happening in, in the Avengers. There was great stuff about to start happening in Daredevil, uh, Thor. It was a great time. Uh, it was kind of cusp time, I think, because you were at the sort of end of some of the people who'd been very active in the 60s and early 70s, like um, Bushema, and you were in the start of um, Claremont, Frank Miller. It's a very, very interesting time. Mm -hmm. And I was like a kind of infection spot around the university. A lot of other people caught the habit from me. Uh, oh. And so there was immediately a kind of community. So, you know, the next issue of the X-Men would be awaited for with... Uh, some anticipation. Well, let me ask you about that a little bit. I mean, Andrew already mentioned that, yeah, your book, Superheroes and Modern Mythology, was one of the first, not only one of the first sort of like serious academic books on comics, but like also one of the first to take a serious look at Chris Claremont's X-Men, because as Andrew uh, has think, talked to about be in honest, his work. The first, yeah. uh, first, Anna, I would actually say probably the yeah. first. Yeah. yeah, I would too, because well, the you know, that's a funny ones, thing, the sort of fan culture ones. That's a funny thing, because when that book came out, one or two of the, the rather know-it-all reviewers uh, said it was very good to study the Frank Miller and the Alan Moore as, as mm -hmm. um, set text, standard text, but the, the X-Men, Claremont's X-Men is not in the same category. That's funny. Same, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I thought, well, don't read it. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> You're preaching it. to the choir here, Richard. Yeah, I know. But, I mean, that was so typical of that time that people people didn't really want to have to engage with the stuff. So if you could just read Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns and say you'd done it, you know. There's, there's a very good line from Bob Dylan on the back cover notes of um, John Wesley Harding, where it's a little story, and somebody says, uh, how far do you want to go into this? And the guy says, oh, just far enough so we can say we've been there, but not so far mm. so we can't get back again. And... Yeah. That was a lot of that around in the late 80s, early 90s about comics and superheroes, you know. We know this stuff's sort of getting a bit more important, but we don't really actually want to have to deal with it like we do with the movies and theatre and television because there's just so much, you know. So let's just, you know, have a little taste. Am I making any sense? You are mm -hmm. making sense. But, like, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, what was the process of creating that book and publishing that book, given the environment that you're talking about, where there wasn't a lot of encouragement oh, for that kind of scholarship? Um, no, well, I was working in publishing at the time, and I was the uh, in-house editor of a series on um, cultural studies. Do you remember cultural mm -hmm. studies? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and and you actually made a factual mistake when you said my book was published in '94. It actually came out in this country, in the UK, in 1992, as part oh, of a okay. series that I was the, the editor of. That was the original British edition, uh, and that was a series dealing with cultural studies. So, comics could be on superheroes could be a legitimate 
area of inquiry for that. And there was another book in the same series on soap opera and horror. Quite a good book, actually, by a book about, about horror. And it was only um, a couple of was later that that book, my book, was picked up by Thomas Inge at Mississippi University Press and it was published in the USA. Oh, okay, that makes sense. I think yeah. really gave it its longevity. But it had been out for a couple of years here. And they asked me to add that extra chapter on the um, death of Superman for the American mm-hmm. edition. But so, you know, it, it comes from, I don't know how much that still shows in that book, but it comes from that space of cultural studies. I think I was probably more enthusiastic about comics and superheroes than a lot of people who write about stuff from a cultural studies perspective, where it's almost like the forensic dead body on the gurney that you're examining. (laughs) I think that comes across because one of the things, yeah, that I was going to bring up later, but I'll bring it up now, was that, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to speak for Andrew, you can speak for yourself, but I mean, I think one of the reasons that your book really stood out to me. I mean, it's that it's the first book, but it's also that your approach was less ashamed of the material than a lot of other stuff that came out sort of in the late 90s and even in the early 2000s, because it was such a breath of fresh air to read this serious academic study of superheroes, which has a lot of great insights, but also doesn't like hate the thing that it's writing about. <laughs> because like yeah, well, that really comes across. I mean, this is a question for the three of you. Why would you write about something you hate? I mean, I don't know. I, 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 maybe just to get a career advancement. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, this is a new field. I better get into it. I mean, I haven't been in academia as long as I was in publishing yet, but there are a few cynical people in academia, aren't they, who just are looking for the, the right bandwagon to jump on. I mean, yeah, that can be part of it. I mean, I don't know. When I think about that context of comic studies, though, too, I mean, the shame that goes along with that, which, you know, has only been changing recently, and yet I still find shows up, you know, people talk about their personal history with superhero comics from this point of like, oh, I need to grow beyond this. You know, this isn't like something that an adult should be interested in. And like, I still see kind of those attitudes show up in some comic studies and I think it shows up in the bifurcation of comic studies too like between sort of scholarship on autobiographical comics and scholarship on superhero comics and how those two worlds are sometimes disconnected for various reasons yeah but I don't know I still go back to your book as like an example of doing that kind of scholarship like not from a place of shame well look at uh, archaeologists they, they, they grovel through the sewers of Rome or Herculaneum <laughs> looking at shit. <laughs> They're taken seriously. I can tell you another funny story about, I know exactly what you When I brought my comics collection home at the end of the summer term, 1978, which wasn't very big by then, it could all fit in one, could fit in one paper bag. And I was back home, sort of July 1978, up in my bedroom, unpacking my stuff for the beginning of the summer vacation. And my mother comes up, this is England, so what does she come up with? A cup of tea, potted tea, you know? <laughs> and um, she comes in, and I'm unpacking my stuff. And I say, oh, you never know, Mother. I've, uh, Mom, I've uh, started, got a new interest. I've started collecting something new. And I hold up this um, brown paper bag. She says, what is it? Girly magazines. <laughs> and I said... No, superhero comics, and her face fell. You know, I mean, this oh, one's no. a, <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, soft porn would be a phase that any you know yep. young man might go through and come out the other <laughs> side. But reading comics are really bad, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I'm very familiar with all of that. I, I don't think I've ever felt very ashamed though. I'm glad. I'm glad. No, you do you shouldn't. all feel? Do you have you do you have this shame? Us? 
Yeah. Yeah. I I doubt it. I doubt it. Well, we did just talk about imposter syndrome at the top of the pod, though, so I'm not sure. (laughs) It's weird. I I think it's you made the joke about girly mags. So one of my other many other titles is I'm 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 chair for the Popular Cultural Association. I'm chair of erotica and pornography. Um, And and the same thing happens there. It's there's in popular culture studies, there's for almost everything. There's this apologetic need that academics tend to have to justify whatever you know no i know i'm doing comics but i swear it's the good comics it's and and it's always no matter what it is it's always like no we we i swear there's something here and you sort of want to justify Mm -hmm. it because of this history that the field has of trying to distinguish between high art and low art a thing that like we argue you can't do from a theory point of view and yet we we you know feel the need to constantly apologize so in my own work i try really really hard to not do that and sometimes i you know massively overcorrect by you know doing a book series about aunt harriet you know <laughs> like you know <laughs> like that's 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 like a thing that i that i do but but also but i but i do think it's in you know i i say on the on my other show like my some of my favorite television shows i i bring up a lot are like cop rock and and riverdale you know like because i think there's always sort of a an inclination to sort of shy away from what is considered less than because it's you know because it's popular um and i think that continues today with people saying oh no i swear there's something to these marvel movies yeah i know they made a billion dollars every (laughs) you know like it's it's not hard it's not hard to do that but but we we fall into that trap because we're human just like yeah i think on this show we tend to hide it it's a two-edged trap isn't it because i think (laughs) if we look deeper into this it what it really is is just an aspect of majority of people's vast discomfiture with culture of any kind Mm-hmm. And they want to know, they want to know they want to be known know what it's all right to like so they don't get it mm-hmm. wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And Nowadays, there's right? so much fear around. It doesn't matter whether it's opera. I mean, my my wife Carolyn was talking about when she was working in Washington D.C. when she was a, a nurse there. She went to the opera in one of I guess it would be the Kennedy Center somewhere. And one of her colleagues said, oh, you're going to the opera, Carolyn. You are a snob. And then she put a finger under her nose and pushed it up in the air. So that's the other end of the scale, isn't it? That massive discomfiture with anything that is too high cultural. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about your answer to that question, Andrew, because I know, you know, and I mean, this could be a way for you to talk about (laughs) when you encountered Richard's book, too, because I mean, I know it's been an ongoing journey for you to figure out a way to study the work of Chris Claremont and sort of emphasize the value of that work. So like, yeah, I mean, have you encountered that academic shame in your career, Andrew? Yeah, of course. I I think, I mean, last week, someone sounded off on the the Claremont run about how I I should be studying adult books or something like that. Uh, And man, there's the other side of that, exactly as we're all saying here, where all these people are coming forward and saying, you know, holy crap, like like what you're saying, the literary and analytical tools that you're applying to this this text, they're working for me. I'm I'm seeing this in his writing. It, It really is that good. And they responded to it when they were teens, probably reading it for the first time. But they weren't allowed to appreciate it intellectually. 
so uh, again, that ability for good scholarship to come along. I think um, the Hernandez brothers actually speak to this in a really, a really, really good essay called A Habitable Place uh, and be able to allow you to sort of understand how these things that are moving you are important and are good outside of society's prejudicial values, which, as we all know, are based in all kinds of things, including racism in some cases with Congress. Yeah. Uh, so it's yeah, no, it's 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 delightful when that happens. And but being able yeah, um, to do that as fun as a scholar. Andrew, um, don't you think that's one of the jobs that we critics and scholars actually can do in the world? hundred percent. Which yeah. is creating. And one of, one of the reasons people can't articulate their enjoyment of certain art forms and comics for a long time was in that category is because there's no language. There's no understood language to talk about. Right. It. And it, it's through the beginnings of trying to create that language, which I think I played a small part in, that you can actually allow, bring people, empower people to actually talk in an intelligent way. That, you know, that discourse doesn't just come out of nowhere. It had yeah. to, it had to be created for, for the film as an art form. It had to be created, if you, you know, if you go way back, it had to be created for fine art, in, in the, certainly mm -hmm. in Europe, in the Renaissance. You know, that didn't, wasn't just immediately understood. It had to be created for theatre, you know? These intelligent conversations and conversations where people feel comfortable recognising their experiences through, through engagement with others and discussion and criticism, they're the product of, of generations almost of effort, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. This is really delightful, by the way. This feels like meeting your hero and your hero's patting you on the head oh and validating God. all the stuff that you've done. Oh, God. <laughs> oh really I'm, awesome. a, I'm just a very ordinary guy. Don't put me on <laughs> That's, that's very fair i will try uh, to be cool I'll, I'll chime in i'll chime in briefly on the shame question just because i think i have a particular yeah. perspective on it but i think for me it's one of the rare cases in which i kind of benefit from my marginalized status as like a woman reading you know male-dominated mm -hmm. genres like Boy directed books. at men mm -hmm. Beca yeah because it's like boys, it's always a boys, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's always like a rebellious <laughs> gesture for me right like it's like mm -hmm. well i shouldn't be here anyway mm -hmm. so like there's a coolness to yeah. that that i think i benefit from mm -hmm. that appeals to me like i mean i won't lie it appeals to me liking stuff that i'm not supposed to like mm -hmm. but at the same time like i've definitely experienced that where like i've been so excited about something like i remember being in grad school for my phd and um submitting some abstract for a conference like about when i was first doing some academic work on rob liefeld and i was so excited i was like god i pitched this abstract it's insane i'm gonna academically analyze rob liefeld <laughs> i'm so excited and i was telling like my fellow grad students this just blank faces had no idea what i was talking about and then suddenly i was like oh maybe i'm not cool <laughs> So there's been moments like that where you're just so out of step with your colleagues. And I definitely in my PhD, in my particular PhD program, the majority of people were like talking about avant-garde poetry for their dissertations. And I'm oh, here yeah, like same. wanting to talk about superhero comics. Yeah, so there's same. definitely been moments like that where you're just not not in the right kind of space to kind of nurture that. But I mean, what's been great about you know, moving some of our scholarship online and stuff is like being able to find kind of those communities that we didn't necessarily have access to mm. before we had that, which, you know, again, is why the death of Twitter is so sad and all of that stuff. But but still, like, yeah, it's it's funny how despite how determined you are not to feel shame. I mean, at time of recording, I'm a couple of days out from my birthday and to announce my birthday, <laughs> I did like a version <laughs> of me and the like Paul Smith <laughs> 
<laughs> Nightcrawler pinup in which Nightcrawler is doing a Burt Reynolds pose like for Amanda from Uncanny 168. So, you know, I have no shame, but <laughs> at the same time, like <laughs> even I could be put in these moments in which like, oh, like maybe what I'm doing isn't valuable. Maybe like I'm not achieving the kind of respect that I'm, you know, I don't know. I don't, I'm not after respect. So I don't even know. That doesn't make sense. But you definitely get sort of in these moments in which, in which you experience that shame, despite your best intentions not to. Right. Yeah. I think we, I mean, it's weird because so when we, when the three of us came up with doing this show and it was very much a, no, we'll, we'll pick something that we know is ridiculous. And we talked about it in that sense. Like, you know, even amongst fans of X-Men, we knew we were picking a niche product, right? Like a niche product inside of it. And I think that part of it is because of who we are. There's like sort of a goofiness to it where we, you know, where we joke about it as though we're not doing anything serious. And also even, you know, what we've talked about it, like this part of the run, none of us think are, is particularly good. So we, we have this sort of (laughs) inclination to sort of, justify it by no we're going to do the serious work by having a conversation like this rather than talk about oh my god crimson dawn oh god um, it's true <laughs> and, and, and so 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 i, I don't this whole conversation I mean, is shame <laughs> right but but i don't i don't mean to, so i just i'm just i'm just sort of hesitant to like pretend that you know like we talked at the beginning about like i absolutely have imposter syndrome about stuff when i see people who are doing important work in milton or shakespeare or or tolstoy or or joyce or you know other important academic scholars and i'm like you know so you know rob liefeld and jack kirby or you know <laughs> you, you know like there's like there is sort of a you know there is a sense of that but i also think like the reasons i like you guys the reasons i like richard's book the reasons you know the people that we've had on this show for the last hundred and 20 odd episodes you know there we, we sort of cultivated a community of people who can both take it in good naturedness but also try to work beyond the the basics of oh well this sucks and or this is good which i think is actually what a lot of academic criticism is like why do people why do people analyze things they hate because part of that's what part of criticism is and i find that style of it kind of joyless and i don't want to do it so Mm. you know so we went out and we found all the people who wanted to do something that I, I, I'm going to oh, say, yeah. I'm going to say is smarter, but it's, that's, you know, I don't know, is the kind of thing that I enjoy more. You know, there's a reason that, that I like Richard's book. There's a reason that I like, um, you know, the other, the past 110 guests that we've had, you know, or I didn't count. I'm, if, there, wow, if there's 111, uh, uh, wow. if, this is. I, I don't, it's actually more than that. So I don't, you know, I, or so don't feel like I'm leaving anybody out. However many guests we've had on the show, it's part, of, it's part of, hey, let's have a real discussion about this that can be valid and interesting and not just a, I don't know, this sucks because Crimson Dawn is stupid and they don't make any sense. Well, okay. That that makes me feel because I've I've actually done a bit of prep, you know, a bit of homework for this, and I've been thinking (laughs) about my response to. And I've read quite a bit of this run, both before and after the the, even the four comics Mm -hmm. of this story. So I am ready to try and say something intelligent and uh, even interesting about all this. But and I, I'm glad that I'm not going to offend anybody if I'm if I criticise it because I do think no. there are some problems no, with, yeah, uh, for sure. with this work. There um, are many problems in this. Yeah. So, but I found it interesting. Got me thinking. 
it got me thinking about 1990s material, and which is not my favorite period in mm-hmm. in the superhero, but it got me thinking quite hard about it. And that's one of the spin-offs of, of looking at different material, isn't it, that you wouldn't normally encounter. Uh, when I was writing about Emma Frost, I finished up reading a lot of stuff that, you know, I wouldn't have read because I thought it was the best material ever. But the whole experience was very good. Yeah, I was going to ask you to talk about some of your more recent stuff, but I think I'll weave it into our conversation because um, I want to talk to you about female superheroes specifically and like female villains. But um, let's do the issue summary and we'll come right back to your first impressions because, again, in the interests of actually having a conversation about this not very good comic, um, (laughs) especially since you did prep, we better get to it. So um, we'll do the issue summary and I'll come right back to you, Richard. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely wouldn't choose fitting in a few more reps over taking a minute to tell you your girlfriend broke up with you. I'm not going to let that go. Just to prove how really (laughs) basically humanely thoughtful we are, here's a plot summary. Excalibur number 109 opens with Kurt in a silly hat that's actually a busted Cerebro helmet that promptly becomes more busted, exploding and sending Kurt and Moira ducking for cover. Not willing to admit defeat, Kurt promises to persevere. In the aftermath, he also asks Moira how her research on the legacy virus is going, assuring her she's not alone, to which she replies, aren't I? Elsewhere, Piotr, Kitty, and Rain are working out in a regular gym, but I guess stranger things have happened, like Amanda Sefton leaving the team without telling anyone besides Colossus, and Colossus apparently neglecting to tell Kurt. Their condo is broken up when they hear the explosion in the lab, but they don't yet know how the situation has evolved. Back in the lab, Spiral arrives with Megan in tow. She crosses swords with Kurt and hot knives with Pete Wisdom before being dragged through the floor by the newly arrived Kitty. In the lab, Megan wakes up and is tended to by Pete Wisdom, who thinks she's acting odder than usual when she claims to see a strange person in the middle distance communicating a message that Brian's in danger. Displaying yet another new aspect of her powers, Megan literally commands the molecules of the floor to separate and allow her to pass so she can get to Spyro. Meanwhile, Brian Braddock tries to hold his own against the dragons of the Crimson Dawn. He's been transported to their lair where they inform him he is going to be the catalyst which sets loose the Crimson Dawn upon the world. Weakened by his distance from the British Isles, Brian suffers under various assaults by the dragons but knows he must hold on for Megan's sake. Back at Mirror Island, Spyro gets tossed around by Kitty, Colossus, and Rain before being pinned at sword point by Kurt. Megan, however, races to Spiral's aid, claiming that Brian is in danger and Spiral is the only one who can help. The others aren't convinced, since Spiral is as well known for her lies as her many arms and fabulous boots, but a lack of options forces their hand. They let Spiral teleport away, wondering if they made a terrible mistake. So Richard, we already started to get into your first impressions a little bit, but I don't know. Was it, Were there things that interested you about this comic that baffled you? I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Uh, three, three main thoughts, if you want me to dive straight in. Go for um, it. First of all, I feel that Salvador La Roca doesn't really want to be doing his art in the way that he's expected to do <laughs> in the 1990s. Ooh. I mean, the whole, we're still towards the end of that era, aren't we, where everything is kind of under the spell of Liefeld and Lee and Wilson mm-hmm. Potasio and all those people. And the, the page has got to be covered with these exploding lines. And I feel he doesn't really want to draw like that. And I was checking out his... He moved away, didn't he, from that style. And I think you can see there a kind of battle going on, uh, even in the in this particular issue. I mean, I think... I hope I'm not... I think there are some dreadful pages, really awful <laughs> yeah. bits of layout in this. The one I would single out as clearly by someone who just doesn't want to be drawing this way is the third page that's got the Chinese ideograms around it with... Braddock trying to punch out of the frame. That page just seems to me completely unbalanced and disorganized. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to do a Jack Kirby, Neil Adams, punch out of the frame bit of energy, isn't he? But it doesn't work because the frame, the whole way the body's drawn actually pushes in and weakens Mm. the 
the effort. It doesn't, it doesn't give you any sense of explosion and power. It gives you a sense of sort of crumpling. And, and the same problem three pages later, Colossus kind of punching against the side of the panel border where yeah. Spiral is sort of half... That's a terrible page layout. Yeah, really, his pose dreadful. there is funny um, too. Yeah. Pardon? His what? pose there is quite funny too. It's not uh, a It's a, good... just a dreadful page layout. I mean, it's wrong in just about every way. I mean, the panels fight against the the emotions of the, the emotions of the characters as they're portrayed. Mm. He's got Colossus's arm. I mean, Scott um, McLeod would say what was wrong with that punch. It's it's just caught too too early in the movement of the punch, isn't it? So the mm-hmm. the the energy is dissipated. But on the other hand. I feel sometimes he's drawing pages and panel layouts that he actually likes, the kind of stuff he wants to do. So if you go back to four or five pages earlier, the page between uh, Megan and, and Pete Wisdom, mm-hmm. uh, where there's the three layered panels and there's a kind yep. of fan shape of panels around the top and then the resolution at the bottom, that, that works to me as a, as a page of art in a quiet way. It tells a story and the panel's and the drawing don't seem to be fighting each other and fighting with the word balloons. Am yeah, I making sense? Yeah, that's funny. No, you are making sense. We, that sort of something similar came up when we were talking about his art a couple of uh, episodes ago, and episodes that was not out at the time of this recording, that the pages that we liked most in that issue were actually the quiet sort of conversational scenes rather than some of the action scenes, which we all found yeah. disorienting in like sometimes fun ways and just sometimes straight up disorienting ways. So yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, two other thoughts. It, the the story. I mean, you you very kindly helped me out with the continuity, and I've read around this, and I don't feel disoriented at a basic level. Although I've never was never a fan of Excalibur, I've never followed it much until you know preparing for this podcast. But it feels like the whole enterprise is 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 burdened by its own continuity and its backstory. You know, this is Marvel nineteen ninety seven eight, isn't it? It's in the company's bankrupt, in receivership. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of a, the history seems a burden mm-hmm. rather than a liberation. The history of the characters. Um, yeah. Everything feels like, oh, we, we're going back to this for the third or fourth time. Oh, gosh, I guess we have to, you know. And I think there's, again, I delved into this a bit. You guys know much more about this. But it feels like Pete Wisdom, who's one of these incredibly annoying British characters, <laughs> British writers in Fen. I mean, yep. I just get rid of him, you know. I mean, people like... Uh, <laughs> Who's going to listen to this? People like Warren Ellis and Alan Moore just seem to sort of create, you know, um, token British characters like that mm-hmm. in those days. And they're just awful. I mean, I think he's the most <laughs> annoying character. One of the most annoying characters in comics, along with Snapper Carr from the... Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> wow, that was what? deep cut. <laughs> deep cut, I like it. <laughs> yeah, well, do you, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, we're going to be... I, I mean, I think he's just... Those British characters, dreadful. They're all trying to do a Neil Gaiman, aren't they? And they can't really do it. And what was my other point? I had a third point, yeah. Um, context. This is a serious point. The complete lack of context, historical, political context. So Mm. this comic goes to Hong Kong and it talks a bit about British identity and the sort of post-imperial persona of Captain Britain uh, Mm -hmm. without even any awareness that we're in the year that Hong Kong reverted to Chinese rule after 150 Ah. years after the Opium War. I mean, Mm -hmm. to just not be aware of that and to write about a British character uh, who derives his strength from the British Isles in Hong Kong in 97-98, in isolation from that, I don't know, I just think that's a bad miss, you know? Yeah. Um, 
And what I enjoy more, I enjoy comics, superhero comics, where there's a context, where the characters are aware of things that are going on in the same world that I live in, and those things inflect the action, uh, and yet there's more action on top of that. So you could have you could have used that trip to Hong Kong to say something really interesting about imperialism and its aftermath, but no. A smarter comic would have had Brian just in the middle of, of the fight at that exact moment, and his power just cuts in half as Hong Kong reverts. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yeah. That would like have been. Yeah. I mean... Those are my points anyway. I don't know if they, they leave I love anywhere. it. I love it. Mm -hmm. They absolutely do. I really loved your observation about this moment in continuity being the point in time in which, you know, Marvel comics and perhaps especially X-Men comics are becoming overburdened by continuity. I think that that's such a such an interesting point. And I'm thinking about the way that feeds back into so many X-Men comics from this era. <laughs> but um, I'm yeah. going to be thinking about that for a while. But let me grab some first impressions from from Andrew and Mav. Let's start with you, Andrew. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, no, not good. But I, I think one of the things that's kind of foregrounded for me here is, is just the lack of realistic immersion in the world and the lack of consideration for the world in bringing it to life mm -hmm. the verisimilitude mm -hmm. to use the lit term like there's just a ton of details here that are absolutely infuriating uh they again haven't explained how nightcrawler is using a machine designed for telepaths maybe that's why it explodes Bugs he me. has a sword that appears out of nowhere uh he, he wears two <laughs> swords on his back even when he's working cerebro which is strange <laughs> Um, you already mentioned it, the, the they haven't told him yet because they have to get their workout in. I know. Like, we've talked before, Excalibur yeah. at its best is this really cool domestic fantasy that makes their lives and their world feel lived in, right? And, and this, this issue in particular, more than anyone we've read, I would argue, just constantly keeps knocking me out of that. And, and at some point, it's not nitpicking. At some point, it's it really is uh, about narrative immersion and embodiment of the characters. And I'm just frustrated with it for that reason fair mav you want to chime in i gotta underscore what you just said if if my wife leaves me and for some reason doesn't bother to tell me she just tells <laughs> oh, God, one of you so and you don't get around to telling me mm -hmm. for i mean it's been at least three days conservatively <laughs> I'm, I'm more mad at you now <laughs> like mm -hmm. like, than I am. like like you know like how does he not know it makes no sense they've gone on a mission and come back and like they're like Oh yeah, we should tell Kurt, but you know, it's leg day. Like what the hell is that? <laughs> like, like it makes no No, no, no. it's sense. not leg day cuz look at Colossus's legs. <laughs> They're very very well, tiny he's, in that image. He's tr he's trying. He's trying to do leg day. <laughs> it's so like oh god, nothing nothing there makes sense. And yet he, you know, he can tell Rain and Kitty about it. I it, know. It's like the logic of it is just broken yeah and there's i mean i'm i'm willing to accept that you know maybe we're gonna make changes to cerebro to allow non-telepaths to use it that's always been a flaw and it's always been something that they've worked on but kurt is not a scientist kurt is not an engineer kurt can you know kurt is a regular I mean, he's not like he's stupid but we're all in intelligent people go build a nuclear reactor I can't do that. I don't know how to <laughs> like, like that's just like, it, this is not a skill that he should have any ability to do. And then, you know, Moira's like, Oh, you're a smart guy. I'm sure you'll figure it out. What, what are you talking about? Like that's, it, it's just, it's insulting. And this is just like the first few pages. And then that goes throughout the entire book. 
I there there's just all these little details where it's just like why are people behaving like it's their first day on earth um, yeah. And, yeah. and 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 there's like i mean the crimson dawn it's actually their first day on earth in a while so you've got kind of a kind of an excuse but like like everybody else is just being weirdly incompetent yeah just massively weirdly so i, I was gonna save it for my final thoughts but I'll, I'll point out the one that's the most most egregious to me spiral forgets how many arms she has <laughs> <laughs> she she literally day. she said she says to Kurt, "Well, you've only got three limbs, but I've got you know to attack with, but I've got four. No, you have six. You it's six. like <laughs> the thing that you do. <laughs> like, like and, it, and it's just like she says, a pity your three limb strike is no match for my four armed assault. You have six arms. You have six swords. I know because I count it when in the picture, like." It's right there. Just no one cares. The book is just lazy, and and no one cares to like correct stuff like that. So I'm glad you pointed because you know, I thought I was missing something there, Mav, as as a <laughs> not a you know not an expert on this team. I thought on, on I thought I was missing some subtle innuendo there, but it's no. it's just wrong, is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's just laziness. Yeah. yeah. And you know, some of that stuff has to come down to editing too, you know, like, I mean, I know somebody tweeted at us that, you know, Ben Robb has talked about his work on this year of Excalibur and how he's learning on the job and he's like trying to do the best we can. And, you know, we're sympathetic to that. It's like a hard job sure. and, you know, Marvel is in turmoil at this time and we get it. But at the same time, you know, this book had two editors and they should be able to note that like Spiral <laughs> That might be the problem, actually. Speaking to an ex-editor, Anna, that's probably the yeah. problem, not the solution. <laughs> Two be. editors, not good. You know, sometimes one editor <laughs> is better than two. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and i'll pick it up and post it's, a, yeah. it's that kind of thing well let's talk a little bit about spiral i said before we did the issue summary that i wanted to come back to you to talk a little bit about i want to say bad girls sort of kind of but that's maybe a reductive term where spiral's concerned but um yeah one of the really compelling arguments that you make in superheroes and modern mythology and i know uh you've written about emma frost more recently as you said um but it has to do with and i know you've written about jessica jones as well but um you make an argument uh, about how the genre depicts women that i think is really compelling in that like it distills the issues with sexual agency that you know we've often come back to on a pod like this when we're talking about you know can it be powerful for these characters to be sexy to be wearing revealing costumes you know it seems like it should be liberating and yet it's often not so the way you talk about it as i recall is that you're like well these characters appear with these like highly sexualized bodies and sexy costumes and yet a lot of the men almost all of the men within the narrative tend to like ignore that sexiness, which sort of domesticates it in a way and sort of modulates it and means that they like don't necessarily have the agency that you would think that they would have because like that sexiness is like both displayed and denied. And I do think that's a really compelling argument that I've thought about a lot, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about sort of these kind of characters in this space and like whether you think that they can sometimes be disruptive or not because yeah i definitely was thinking about your your emma frost piece a little bit in relation to spiral i mean they're obviously very different characters but you did a great job in that piece sort of talking about the complexity of a character like that so yeah i'd love to hear your thoughts i mean can these kind of characters be disruptive or are they too steeped in sexist tropes well, Anna, putting on my male gaze, which I have, even <laughs> at my advanced age, um, I think the problem with Spiral, really, seriously, is that she's got six arms. And 
Uh, so it's quite hard to be sexy with six arms. I hope that doesn't sound <laughs> like ableist. Um, uh, I don't mean it to be ableist. It's just, um, you know, there are very strong traditions of male and female beauty. I also think the six arms are a huge problem for the artist. I was going back mm -hmm. through the history of Spiral a bit online and looking at the different renditions of her and I think some of the artists I mean the six arms and with this the very flat 1990s Liefeld Lee style to me it, they almost look like arms in motion that it gets to that point where are these arms are these six arms or is it is it two arms moving very quickly you know like you would represent motion in a certain yeah. style in comics and I, I was looking at some of the other artists that drew spiral later on I mean um, someone like Michael Turner um, who never drew her, uh, I think he would have been given a sort of solidity to the body, which isn't mm -hmm. there in this in this particular comic. And we're talking about the superhero, the superheroine is femme fatale. I think the body has to be more tactile, more three-dimensional for that to really come through. So I'm really talking about Spiral, the rendition of Spiral in this comic uh, mm -hmm. rather than generally. But I do think the six arms are a challenge for, for the artist. Can that be a productive challenge, though, for us as readers? You know, I mean, does the monstrous kind of quality of Spiral give her a kind of power? Because, I mean, I do think in some of the more interesting visual representations of this character, I mean, she has this very conventionally sexy body, and yet she's got this monstrous quality to her as well, right? Like, through through the nature of her embodiment, and she's, you know, she runs a body shop as well that modifies people's bodies. And yet there's also that interesting detail in this comic where, like, she says the reason she joined the Crimson Dawn was because they showed her a version of herself that was so hideous and like disturbing that she was recruited to join their cause and I know nothing's going to come of that but it was an odd detail to like insert that like Spiral is concerned about her own monstrousness which doesn't strike me as in character for Spiral at all but but still it does for Rita. Thinking. It's yeah. Rita, well, I mean yeah. Rita would have been in and yet like I don't the spiral also in this same comic implies that she only joined the Crimson Dawn because it was buying her time to revolt against them. Like, it, like I don't mm -hmm. think I think it's just a because she says, "Oh, I accepted the mark of the Crimson Dawn." You know, like I let them brand me, and I, and it's I don't know that it's that well thought through that like you know, or and it certainly isn't compared with Spiral's previous history. Or, or anything so I don't I don't know I mean it, it is an interesting line you're right that completely just goes nowhere yeah exactly I mean I don't even like I don't even I don't have anything to say about it because I know it doesn't go anywhere it's just an odd line mm -hmm. can I make another comment about Femme Fatale in of comics course. I think you need more space around the character I, I was mm. I was thinking about this in terms of I mean to me the, the greatest artist who never drew the Femme Fatale is somebody like Caravaggio I mean, he makes Jesus look like a femme fatale. And yeah. it's all done with, with the way that the body is positioned in space and the use of chiaroscuro mm -hmm. and the way that the body has a manual tactile space, I think as George Bratt would call it, around itself in which it can act. But Spiral, in these pages, in the, in the, it, she's so hemmed in by mm. all the other stuff that's going on on the pages. You can hardly tell where her body begins and ends and where, you know, all the other stuff, the swords and the background. I, I think that's problematic. I think sexiness needs a certain um, distinctiveness from its environment. Does that make sense? 
No, that does make sense. I mean, the way that she's spectacularized, I mean, it's gazy just because that's the way superhero comics are. I mean, like, the default sexiness of female bodies is present, but there aren't pages in which that's the focus. Like, I'm looking at the one where she's having the conversation with Pete Wisdom, and it's exactly like you're saying, right? The page is so busy that, like, what am I supposed to focus on? It's like, yeah, her boobs are there, but there's so much else to look at that her boobs actually aren't the focus, which I don't know if that's good or bad, but, like, it's true. Yeah. I think there's also Richard commented you know, a while ago about like the way Brian is drawn in that one panel where he's trying to punch out of the frame and how it doesn't work. And I think that this is, I think you might be spot on with the argument that this is not how Laraka wants to draw. And I, I said like a couple episodes ago that like we're, we're seeing his evolution as an artist, you know, in real time. The reason the Brian panel doesn't work for powerful is because everything in this book is so jumbled. There's so much smushed into every frame that it mm -hmm. doesn't stand out. Like, yeah. uh, like if you if you're gonna do a panel where somebody's punching out of a frame, it needs to be a smaller frame, and they need to extend far beyond it. Instead, he's got a piece of his index finger and his thumb that have gone ever so slightly beyond the frame, and it happens so much because everything's such a jumbled mess that I don't know that it's supposed to um I don't know that it's supposed to feel special because yeah, there is issue, no right? focus to it. Right. And it's and the same thing happens here with Spiral in the panel that you that you were just talking about, Anna. I mean, is she sexy? I mean I guess. Um, I mean, so first off, I would like to apologize to any of our six armed listeners for Richard saying <laughs> that you're not sexy because I, I think you're gorgeous. But um, but here she's she's just existing in the mess of other lines because I don't have time to to register anything that's sexy about her. And I'm not sure if she's supposed to be or not. Where I do know that someone is supposed to be is uh, Megan a few pages later when she's re-entering the fight and her boobs are falling out of her costume and you don't even notice because there's so much other stuff going on. Like she, like you, you're sort of losing the, the gaze is resisted because there's just too much going on for me to gaze at her boobs. And yeah, and like, like Anna, is that good? I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's intentional. I think it's just lost. It's just, it, it's just compositionally lost. She busts well, out of the frame. I think if I'm looking at the image you mean, mm -hmm. yeah, her, her hair foot, her, and her for hair. no real yeah. reason, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I mean, Andrew, do you want to chime in with any thoughts about Spiral before? Because I, I think this is a great opening to talk about Excess a little bit with Richard. So that's what I'm going to go to next. But if you want to weigh in and Spiral, you can go ahead. Yeah, I think you've touched on it already, and I think there is an emancipatory potential to Spiral's, for lack of better term, monstrosity yeah. uh, and the way that it takes her out of the gaze. And I'm one thing I would point out about LaRocca's illustration of Spiral in this issue. He's clearly having fun doing it. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yeah, I, I agree the first, with Richard. That, like, two, that double page splash like, is quite nice. Yeah, the, the illustrations of Spiral doing the magical dancing thing, those mm -hmm. tend to be pretty powerful images. There's a lot of fun being had. Yeah, I, I think Spiral is definitely a character who has the potential to resist, especially when you know her backstory and the tragedy behind it that we mentioned with Rita, um, and especially when you align it with um, certain mythologies about the Spiral dance, too. So I find the character pretty powerful. I think LaRocca does an okay job with it. Um, Rab, some interesting stuff in terms of her being, you know, neither good nor bad inherently, just kind of doing her own thing. I don't know. I, I think for me, Spiral's maybe one of the highlights of this issue, but that's yeah. that's a low bar for me. <laughs> 
yeah yeah i mean the page where she kind of busts in for the first time is probably my favorite page in the comic the energy lines and sort of the pacing there and the spectacularization of her is a little bit more effective there than it is elsewhere in the Mm -hmm. issue for me but let's get back to that question of excess so i mean obviously i mentioned in your bio richard your fabulous book superheroes and excess which is an anthology of essays uh to which i had the pleasure of contributing but i'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit like in general or in relation to this issue you know like what is like I don't know like ontologically interesting to you about the concept of superheroes and excess like when we're talking about excess in relation to superheroes is that a defining aspect of this genre is it one of the things that's interesting about this genre like what made you want to sort of approach that topic specifically well you know Eric Bolatsky wrote a review of that book um it's very just positive review very nice review but he said superheroes in excess and oxymoron um which i suppose is is a very fair comment you know i mean i think to go back to the comic we're talking about here and i think it's it's symptomatic of some of the issues i have with a lot of superhero comics of that era you know the the image and post image 1990s mm-hmm. is that everything is so excessive that nothing is excessive yeah, you know yeah. there's there's no anchor so uh, in all of this series, you've got all these excessive events happening, people teleporting, coming from other dimensions. Um, yeah, Fon Fatales with six arms, everything. But there's no, there's nothing for them to be excessive against. There's, right. they have lost its anchor with uh, what we laughingly call the normal or the real world. And so nothing seems excessive. It becomes just a hermetic game. You know, the kind of thing that um, Alex Ross is satirising, I think, in Kingdom Come, isn't it? That superheroes are in their own little world and they're all fighting each other uh, and it's become separated. So I, I think true excess can only exist in relation to something that we think of as non-excessive. And then we notice mm-hmm. the excess. I mean, this is a very, I suppose, elementary point to make. But um, does that take us anywhere, that thought? <laughs> It does. It does. I like that. And it's like sort of, I don't know, that's the challenge, I think, of, of talking about a lot of 90s comics, which, you know, is something that we've tried to do on this podcast. And we've all written about the comics from this era as well as, you know, how do we quantify the excess from this era? Because there are different uses of excess, different artists employ it differently. And yet sort of the overwhelming nature of excess you can get lost in it, right? And we've had conversations on the pod previously, similar to the one that we just had, where we're like, well, what do we do with the excessive sexiness? You know, is it disruptive? Is it even sexy? Is it veering into monstrousness? Is it just something that we accept as part of the excessive texture in this world so it doesn't really do anything? Because I think it can defang the excess, as you're saying, when there is so much of it that it's just the language of this world and we don't notice it past a certain point. And I think about that a lot and I'm not sure what to do with it because we talked, I think, a couple of episodes ago, or maybe it was our last episode... I think I, I, I rhapsodized a little bit about some of the splash pages of, of La Rocca in terms of we have these bodies and machines and the excessiveness of which the line with which the lines are kind of all integrated makes me think about the ways superhero bodies are machines. And that can be a productive excess for me. And yet it would be going too far for me to say that I'm excited by the art in these comics for all the reasons that we've talked about having to do with pacing. So it's like, I have this thing where like, I want that excess to do something and I'm not convinced that it does. It's like, I want to make it work, but I'm having to do a lot of intellectualizing to make it work. So it's frustrating. So Anna, what, have, what, do you, what about Witchblade? 
Yeah. I mean, we talk about sure. femme fatale and the and the excess and the monstrousness, the sort of almost mm-hmm. monstrousness of, of, of her body uh, and the, the threat of it. I think that's a much more successful depiction of, of a femme fatale who is empowered and who can receive or repel the male gaze and has this extra, this excess. And also that comic is grounded in a, another level in the kind of police procedural world, isn't it? So mm. there, there, is, there is a baseline that it grows up from in, into its more excessive passages. I think that's what's missing here. And I think if um, Spiral was given that kind of treatment, it would turn out very differently. I mean, imagine mm. imagine her working for the police department and having uh, Sarah Patashi. <laughs> oh, what's she's dead, though. What's Witchblade? I didn't. I don't know the whole backstory. I'm making a fool of myself. Is that right? No, no, no. That's yeah. pretty close. That's pretty close. But I mean, so Witchblade is a cop. But I mean, Spiral like has has that backstory. Spiral yeah. is yes, she's a demon sorceress from another dimension, but she's also. I mean, they're not the police, but pretty close. She's also a government agent. They just forgot for this book. Like, she's part of Freedom Force. They could have done that story. Like, she basically is, you know, using her monstrosity to be an agent of, you know, the state. It's a different, it's slightly different being in Freedom Force than being a regular cop. But, like, after Freedom Force breaks up, you could just say, okay, she's still in the employee of the government because she would be. Right. Like you, you, you toss her out there, you have her working for Forge and you could have done that. They just didn't because I don't I don't think they care for me. This this series, this the entire Crimson Dawn series exists because we've got to justify why we want to draw Betsy with this cool tattoo now. That's it. (laughs) Like I I mean, it's like literally 14 issues across three different comic book series to justify why we want to give our ninja character a tattoo over her eye. And like that's that's the lasting change, because, again, we're two issues in. And without looking at your notes, what are the names of the characters of the Crimson I, Dawn? You Matt, don't we're know. Three, we're you three issues remember. in. Three issues. Oh, are we three? OK. Yeah. And, 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 and you won't remember. And again, we've just, we've been talking about this for an hour. It doesn't matter, and I think that that's sort of that's sort of the flaw with this series. The, the excess is there stylistically, as opposed mm-hmm. to for story reasons. Like, there's a reason mm-hmm. why Sarah Pizzini, the Witchblade, is sexy. There's it's part of the story, and it might work for you. It might not. I'm not even necessarily saying that everybody's got to like Witchblade. I actually think it's doing some really interesting work. I know Anna feels similarly because we've talked about it before. But like, I also can see how you might be like, "Oh, this is garbage." But this isn't that. This is just, "Hey, Betsy would look cool with a tattoo over her eye." So what do we have to do from there? And they turned it into 14 issues across three different comic book series. <laughs> and it makes no sense to... And like, before we no get to care. that, you've got issue one of the special Excalibur flashback, mm-hmm. which is a pastiche of one of my favorite ever comics and and one that one of the ones that got me into collecting comic books you know the one week engagement x-men i think it's 111 only you've got um uh stan lee in the in the role of banshee from the front of that comic another very different example of i think the way that the writers are grappling with this excess of continuity and you know mm. you you're characterizing it in terms of making mistakes and and not and being you know almost too lazy to work in all the backstory but part of the problem is there's so much backstory isn't there uh to work in uh there's such mm. an excess of accumulated continuity that it, it it must be very problematic how do you come in as a new editor 
on this stuff. I can't imagine. It's true. Yeah, we're going to have a good talk about the, the Excalibur minus one issue and the Stan Lee cameo and what that yeah. means and does for us. I'm looking forward to that combo in a couple of weeks. Um, I was just showing I've, off that I'd done yeah. my homework, see, Leanna. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I have a, a painting from that issue on my wall, famously, that has showed up on social media at various times. I'm looking forward to that combo. Um, I think I'm enjoying this convo so much, but we got to go to go to some final thoughts because it's it's late where Richard is and afternoon where we are. But um, I'll give everybody a chance to circle back to something as per usual. And uh, maybe we'll start with you, Mav. Anything? I know you already used one of your final thoughts earlier, but is there anything else from this comic that you want to circle back to or bring up that we haven't had a chance to talk about? I, I, well, we talked about it. I do like the Crimson Dawn tattoo. I, uh, I actually do. Yeah, I think it, looks, it's really it does cool. look cool. It, it is a cool design that they could have just started doing, and they sort of did, right? Like in Age of Apocalypse, everybody had cool ass tattoos on their face. It was just like a world where it was a world where Mike Tyson won, right? And like and like facial tattoos just became a thing. <laughs> Mike Tyson doesn't actually get his facial tattoo till two thousand three. I looked it up beforehand. Um, so so like they're like breaking new ground with this, and <laughs> and I appreciated that. I just you know nothing else makes sense about it nothing else uh, 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 how much how little this comic makes sense i could not be bothered to go through my long boxes and like find this physical issue so i'm just reading a pdf in my pdf two pages are out of order page, i know <laughs> okay yeah and i read through it and didn't notice till three or four pages later i thought about it and i was like wait a minute me too that me too. wasn't right <laughs> And then I flip back and it's like, oh, yeah, OK. Nope, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything like Megan and um, shows up or Megan doesn't show up. And they're referring to a conversation that hasn't happened yet. And I mean, it's such a convoluted mess that I didn't even care when I was reading it till like three pages later. So that's that's how I feel about this book. Boy, Andrew, anything you want to circle back to? Yes. I want to be positive. I was going to complain about okay. some of the, the dialogue with the psychic like surgery the to siphon <laughs> magical power. I meant me specifically. Okay. Uh, they use psychic surgery to siphon magical power. Words have meaning, man. Uh, but, so the positive thing I wanted to talk about, um, I liked Kitty's fastball special. Oh, that was kind of cool. Uh, yeah. And a good little team up move. And you're going to use your phasing power to get extra value out of that. I thought that was nice. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew, for being positive. I, I, I am going to do like a little tiny gripe about the writing, which is the very first paragraph of the entire comic, which says, <clears throat> Welcome to the world's foremost center for genetic research on Scotland's Muir Island. Like the way that's written, it's like a dig because it's like the foremost center on Muir Island. I mean, there aren't other centers <laughs> on Muir Island. <laughs> so I mean, like it's not really that impressive to be the only center on this like tiny island anyway <laughs> like i am order I am order of words matters I, yes, I know i know <laughs> i know <laughs> it's just like okay i'm also the anyway. sexiest and the strongest and the richest of the room i am in currently anyway it doesn't matter <laughs> it just is one of those little things again i don't want to harp on it we'll come back to you richard for the final word on this comic oh, anything from uh, our conversation that you want to circle back to or any elements of this comic that we didn't get a chance to discuss as thoroughly as you would like yeah you you wanted to talk about nightcrawler anna who's a great well, i always do and and we've hardly touched on him but i guess that's opening up something new but we never really got to that did we 
Um, I feel I've covered everything, actually, all my notes. The only bit of my notes I haven't used is the stuff uh, when you were going to ask me, which you never did, what I'm doing now. Uh, well, tell um, us about it then, Richard. So I, why don't I just say that? Yeah. Do it. So Lorraine Henry King and I, who was in, she was in the same success book as you, presenting a paper this coming weekend about evolving ideologies in the Marvel Cinema Universe at the Global Superhero Conference in Eastbourne in Sussex which is focusing on the MCU. And I'm also working on a new book of my own and talking to publishers about to get ready to um, perhaps find the right publisher for it. And Lorraine and I also have a very big project announcement in preparation for 2024, which going to be, well, we're organizing a conference in the London College of Fashion for the autumn of 2024 about superheroes and costume. Lorraine being oh. a costume designer, and lecture at the London College of Fashion and the call for papers. I think by the time you release this podcast, we'll be out. So I can say that it's happening because we're going to announce Absolutely. it. Absolutely, send weekend. that along. So if anyone fancies a trip to London in autumn of 2024, late October, early November, <laughs> come and see the new London College of Fashion site in the old Olympic Park. Uh, it'll all be happening there. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And of course, I will recommend to folks that they check out your chapter all about Miss Fury and fashion in a little book called Super Sex, the opening essay of that very fine collection. I've heard it's great. I mean, I don't know. Um, <laughs> thank yeah. you. Yeah, it was pretty good. I, I, I'd like to meet the, the, the woman who edited hmm. it one day. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up our discussion with um, a letter that I'm sure will resonate us, with us from one Ross Aaron Thompson in Seguin, Texas. <clears throat> and it's kind of a long letter, but I think it's worth reading because it comes back to uh, things that folks often ask us about on Twitter. Dear Excalibur folks, I just recently completed my collection of Excalibur back issues and was rereading my entire collection in order from the beginning for the first time with a question when a question popped up in my mind. How old is Kitty Pride? When she was introduced in Uncanny X-Men number 129, she said she was 13 going on 14. Then in Uncanny number 196, she refers to herself as a 15-year-old girl. The official handbook of the Marvel Universe also refers to her as a 15-year-old. However, in Excalibur 24, which came out several years later in our time, she celebrated her 15th birthday we've talked about on this pod she celebrates it twice this was clarified in the letters page of Excalibur 34 where it was explained that she had earlier described herself as being 15 she was rounding up her age and Excalibur 24 was when she actually turned 15 that was from January 1980 (laughs) (laughs) not true I know (laughs) thus from January 1980 to July 1990 our time less than two years had passed in the Marvel Universe then in Excalibur 63 Kylan says that little over a year had passed here while I spent over 20 years on Earth. Since he was sent to Earth by Widget in Excalibur number two, shortly after the team first formed, this means that a year or less had gone by from Kitty's birthday in issue 25 to Alan Davis's departure in issue 65, or 67 rather. I have no clue as to how much time passed between then and now, but a year in Marvel time seems to be equal roughly to four to six years our time, judging from the information I alluded to earlier. Thus, I would estimate that our merry mutants have somewhere within eight to 18 months. This would make Kitty around 16 or 17. Since in Excalibur 89, it was stated that Kitty and Pete Wisdom were roughly 10 years apart in age. This puts Pete in his late 20s. This can't be right. Either a, dis- dispro- either a disproportionately large amount of time has passed since Alan Davis left as compared to before and during his tenure on Excalibur, or it is perfectly acceptable in the Marvel Universe for a 20-something man to date an underage girl. Or perhaps I made an error in my calculations. Perhaps you can explain it to me. Nope. Exactly how old is Kitty Pride? And I'm going to read the editorial response as well. Wow, Ross, you certainly did your research. 
Kitty's age has long been a matter of great debate. We think she's a mature girl in her late teens, and she and Wisdom are kind of like Princess Leia and Han Solo, wouldn't you say? At any rate, we're looking up the definitive Kitty's age story. When it's ready, we'll print it. Just wonderful work there. <laughs> Not justifying this problematic age gap relationship uh, whatsoever. I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. Anyway, yeah, we will wrap things up there. Um, other than to say, Richard, thank you once again from the deep. Well, thank you for having me. Art. I really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, do I have to wait another hundred eleven es- oh episodes to be invited back? Or uh, um, anyway, I really enjoyed it. Well, uh, I don't know. We'll see what we do. We'll see what we do for for our final episode because we're coming to the end of this podcast and we don't know what's in the cards for us next. So you know, we'll certainly get to work together on something else at some point. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, um, I. Please invite me back. I've really enjoyed it and talking to the three of you and just having a really interesting conversation. So thank you very much again. Thank you so, so, so much for, for this wonderful chat about and making this, as we were talking about the, at the beginning of the pod, having an intelligent conversation about a comic that didn't always respect our intelligence. Haven't we done a wonderful service for the academic community writ large on this day? I'm going to go in the opposite of the imposter syndrome that started this podcast. We are the most important and, people who ever lived. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, yeah, just thanks so much, Richard. Uh, it was so much fun. So next, we're still fighting the Crimson Dawn in Excalibur number 110, Heart's Blood Crimson, in which Brian ostensibly makes a terrible sacrifice. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or technically maybe pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras yes i'm still calling it twitter i will never stop thank you mav and andrew for another mythical convo thank you richard for getting philosophical with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought form music for our truly epic theme song play us out 